Welcome to Double Deal, a series about organized crime in 20th century Boston. The stories of our central character, Richard Tchaikovsky. The criminals, the crimes, and the law enforcement officers who ruled the streets. Nina and I will be your guides through the darkest streets of Boston, telling you the true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies. everyone. Thank you for joining us again. Well, it took us seven episodes, but we're finally getting to the central person in our podcast, Dad. At last. Richie would have loved the dramatic buildup. It was necessary to introduce our listeners to Richie's world and the people around him before we introduced him, though. No question about that. So before we get into Dad's childhood, I want to give a little insight into Richie's nature. First, he would love that we're doing this podcast and telling his story. The good, the bad, the amusing, and the sad. He was a true believer in Oscar Wilde's quote, there's only one thing in the world worse than being talked about, and that is not being talked about. Dad always said that it was better that people hear it from you. If you had no secrets, then no one had control over you. This was a man who carried his old wanted posters in his Prada bag, and it wasn't uncommon for him to whip them out. I remember walking into St. Cloud on Tremont Street roughly 30 years ago, and there was Dad at the end of the bar showing someone an array of evidence to his criminal past. Young me was horrified, but Dad was at ease with it all, as if he was showing off a PhD or some other degree. You know people love that stuff. I know. A couple of years ago, I had a conversation with a former law enforcement officer, and he mentioned that Dad had conned people out of millions of dollars, but how he never pretended to be anything other than what he was, a thief and a con man. He never used a different name, never hid his identity. Not only was he not shy about his life of crime, but he was open about being an informant. Yes, that was the most intriguing thing to me. We've both read the 302s from the 1960s, and everyone in his crew knew. Plus, there's F. Lee Bailey's The Defense Never Rests and the whole Tchaikovsky affair. Well, let's not get into that now, but Richie proclaimed himself a double agent for the feds and the postal inspectors live on the Paul Benziquin radio show. Well, that was Dad. He put his shit right out there, and it wouldn't have had it any other way. Okay, let's get into Dad's childhood. My grandparents immigrated to the U.S. in 1913 and 1914. My grandpa Stefan Ivanovich Chehovsky was from Volochysk, Ukraine, and my grandma Josefa Petrovna Gedraiti was from Resigny, Lithuania. They met in Boston, married, and had five kids, the youngest of which was Dad, Richard Tchaikovsky, born June 19, 1935. Your grandmother was already in her 40s by then, right? Yes. There was a seven-year age gap between Dad and their second youngest son, my Uncle Brendan. What did your grandfather do for work? He owned Stevens and Sons. It was a meat market. Grandpa was a butcher, and my Uncle Eddie and Brendan worked with him. I know your grandfather was a hard worker, but were any of your uncles involved in crime? Only my Uncle Danny. After they left the food business in the early 70s, my uncles, including Danny, and my aunt went to work for the Suffolk County Court. Brendan even became a court officer. What was Danny involved in? Danny was run over by a truck when he was little. It crushed his hip. Grandma kept him home and spent every single day getting him back to as healthy as possible, so he was out of school all those years. Eventually, he was able to walk again, albeit without being able to fully bend his left leg, and he was left with chronic pain that led to a lifelong addiction to painkillers. At first, it was petty theft. One of our cousins told me a story about how he and Danny were trying to steal a radio from a store, but it was plugged in so they didn't get far. Between Danny's bum leg and the cord in the outlet, it was a flop. I remember you mentioned to me once that he was running dice games at some point. Yes, and Grandma was the lookout. She would sit in the window of their apartment smoking her Sobrani cigarettes, and when the cops were coming, she'd scream, Sabaki! Sabaki! 
Since most of our listeners probably don't speak Russian, that means dogs. Exactly, and since most of the cops were Irish at that time, they had no clue either. Eventually, Danny was arrested on bookmaking charges and sent to Charlestown State Prison. Do you think that had an influence on Richie? To some extent, I would imagine. Danny was always dressed to the nines, very dapper, as they'd say back then. You've seen pictures of him. There's even the one of him walking out of Charles Street Jail after making bail. They love taking photos, the pictures of all of them in their outfits up on the rooftops of Boston. If they were around today, they'd be Instagram stars. Instagram kings. They all loved custom-made clothes, manicures, shoe shines, all of that. Grandma would take her strolls down to Bonwood Teller to get her perfumes and face creams. She passed away the year before I was born, but I had all of her perfume and fancy liquor bottles. I remember one bottle actually had a ballerina and a little glass bubble in the middle of the bottom, and you could wind it up and it would dance around. Well, it sounds like they were pretty well off then. I'd say so. They didn't want for much. Grandpa's business was successful. Dad had his beloved bicycles. You know, he wasn't always the size he's remembered for being. He was slim and tall like Brendan and my Aunt Helen. Eddie and Danny were slim and much shorter. From the day Richie got out of prison, his waistline slowly expanded. Often when I read a book or news article about him, he's described as short and fat. In his youth, he was roughly six feet tall, but by the mid-80s, he began sleeping sitting up. Between the time he spent in the car and sleeping like that, his spine compressed to the point that he lost about five inches off of his height. When he was seated, you could tell how tall he should have been from the length of his legs, but the damage to his spine was too severe. Why was he sleeping sitting up? He wanted to be able to be on his feet in a matter of seconds. Into his 50s, he had the capacity to be up and on at the drop of a dime, no matter how much he tied one on the night before or how little he slept. But he was roughly 375 pounds by then, so instead of losing weight, he opt opted to never lie down. Well, that's where you get it from. You're on fire and in a good mood the second you wake up, and you're always up before everybody else. Hey, that's part of my charm. Plus, whoever my housemate was knew they'd always have coffee waiting for them. You benefited from that more than once. Every day, actually, but then you drag me on a 10-mile walk. <laughs> Another added benefit of hanging around me. All right, back to Richie. Dad was very different from his siblings. The others were all quirky, eccentric, and not very social. Richie, on the other hand, was extremely outgoing. He loved people and having lots of them around, so much so that he hated being alone. No matter what was happening, he was always cool and calm. Not that he couldn't be intimidating as hell, but he preferred to charm you than intimidate you. On the other hand, he had terrible issues with claustrophobia and being in the dark. There always had to be a light on. What do you think happened to him? Dad being the youngest, he was at home with Grandma more than the others, and he would tell me stories about having to hide in the closet with his mom. Who were they hiding from? Commies. He said the commies would show up banging on the door, screaming, Stefan, Stefan, and demanding that he come out. Dad was, saw it said a group of men would show up almost every day, and there's this little kid hiding from screaming Russians that definitely left a scar on him, but when he was dying, I mean, he talked about it every single day. But was your grandfather a communist? I highly doubt it. Stefan's father was starved during the whole Holodomor. He died from starvation. His brothers died during the war. Only one survived, but landed in a DP camp after the war. That was Matiev. He tried to come to Boston, but he disappeared from the camp. The French probably sent him back to the Soviet Union, and that meant certain death, either in a gulag or a bullet in the head. Riza, dad's aunt, ended up on a collective with her husband and children. From there, there are two grandchildren still alive and two great-grandchildren. From the conversations I've had with my cousins, they suffered terribly from repression. I've read Riza's letters to your grandfather, and I doubt they were communists. 
I agree, but that would be all the more reason that they would be looking for grandpa. Boston was a hotbed for radicals of all sorts at that time. There was grandpa going down to buy Ruski Mare to keep up with what was happening, and maybe he drew attention to himself. Who knows what else he might have been up to. The other thing that I suspect messed dad up was being in the hole at Charles Street. That experience of being in solitary for six months, sleeping on a bare floor of the dark and lack of human contact had to have had a lasting effect on him. When he stopped drinking in 1998 was when the damage really started to show. Well, you know how I feel about our prison system. The system was designed to be strictly punitive. Rehabilitation was or is the last thing on their minds. Exactly. And when they're finally freed, they have no real opportunity to get back on their feet. It's awful. We could do an entire podcast series on that, that subject alone. But we should do a profile of Charlestown State Prison and its more colorful characters. Did you know it was first declared unfit for human occupancy in 1880, but they continued to use it for another 75 years? Okay, I'm off my soapbox now. So, how did Richie end up in the life? After Grandpa passed away from a heart attack at the kitchen table in 1951, Richie started skipping school and hanging around the North End. He was almost 16, and there wasn't much anyone could do to keep him in school. He was washing and parking cars for the guys hanging around Ralphie Chong's club. That led to him working in the club, cleaning up, and eventually helping with the dice games. A not-so-uncommon thing, it seems, back in those days. It has a ring of a Bronx tale to it. Yeah, except that there wasn't anyone to discourage him. After a year or so, he started running heroin for Ralphie. This went on for years. Little by little, he gained Ralphie's confidence. Ralphie started loaning him out to a couple of bookmakers in the area also. Dad had an amazing personality and presence. People were naturally drawn to him. I guess that's what made him a successful con man. When did he first get into trouble? On January 5th, 1957, the DeSisto family in Medford was the target of a home invasion. The men tried tried for the crime were Salvatore Mesti, William Dixon, Lawrence Wood, and Robert Buccelli. Yes, Fats Buccelli's son. That case was disgusting. Oh, this is another one of those cases that was completely insane. Well, let's backtrack a little bit before we get into the details of the DeSisto case. Salvatore Mesti had a record going back to the early 40s. He had already served two terms in state prison. The charges were mostly burglary, but he graduated to armed robbery in the 50s. At one point, he jumped into the Boston Harbor trying to flee the police. Two more Boston pastimes. It's true. On January 2nd, 1957, Mesty surrendered himself to the Boston police. The week before his surrender, Jimmy Flemmy was picked up for a payroll robbery. Two men had robbed the Boston and Albany Railroad Employees Credit Union of $4,500 on December 19, 1956. Jimmy was being held on $5,000 bail when Mesty surrendered. The judge ordered Mesty to be held on $20,000 bail. His arraignment was scheduled for January 9th, but he seems to have made bail. The cops apparently knew that Mesty was involved in the robbery before they knew of Flemmy's identity. Mesty reportedly made his way to Connecticut shortly after the heist to bail his friend, William Alton Dixon, out of jail. Dixon had been picked up in Connecticut a couple of hours after midnight on December 18th for breach of the peace. The police had found him and a friend walking on the side of the road. Their rental car from Boston had been abandoned about a mile away. The police also found a 22 revolver and two rolls of heavy surgical tape in close proximity. Dixon and his friend denied that the items were theirs. Dixon was soon freed on $5,000 bail that Mesty had procured for him. His case was continued on January 3rd. Shortly after noon on January 5th, Bobby Buccelli knocked on the door of the DeSisto home in Medford. Bobby and Wood forced their way in and tied up Mrs. DeSisto and their maid. 
There were three young children also in the home. Cloth diapers were placed over the heads of the two women. Two men then entered the home and they demanded to know where the safe was. Mrs. DeSista refused to tell them even after they threatened to drown the youngest child in a bathtub filled with scalding water. One of the other children showed them where the safe was. They fled 90 minutes later with roughly $4,500 in cash and jewelry. Dixon and Mesty were arrested at 2 a.m. on February 6th in a Charlestown apartment. Both were held on $100,000 bail. However, they were released the next day when the DeSistas failed to identify them, only to be picked up immediately by police in Arlington for another bank robbery that had taken place there in June of 1956. Now, supposedly Bobby Buccelli was kidnapped by Dixon and Mesty on January 9th. In his testimony, he said they threatened to kill him with a gun and stabbed him seven times. Somehow he managed to escape. He hid behind a tree, then took a cab to his apartment in Brookline. Later, he took another taxi to the Boston City Hospital, but he bounced before the police could question him. Meanwhile, William Dixon's case in Connecticut was continued seven times between his initial arrest and January 19th. Dixon was more than an hour late to his court appearance that day. His bond was declared forfeit, and he was taken to Hartford County Jail, where he should have been in the first place. Exactly. Bobby was found in San Diego on March 1st. Yes, Bobby flew to California, ran away. He was returned to Boston and held on a $50,000 double surety and placed in custody in the Norfolk County Jail. On March 11th, Mesty, Dixon, and Buccelli were indicted on 21 counts. There was also a 22-count secret indictment returned. In addition, Mesty and Dixon were indicted for the June 1956 bank robbery in Arlington and for kidnapping Buccelli. In the meantime, Mesty had been cleared of the robbery charges he picked up with Flemmy from the December job. I looked into William Dixon's background. He was a Korean vet who was wounded several times in battle. There's too much info on this case, so if you want to know more about this crime or the individuals involved in the crime, please click on the link in the show notes to, in the show notes to be able to read more about it in our blog. Well, it appears Bobby had no prior record. He didn't, but obviously with Fats as a father, he had ample exposure to the life. We both read the FBI reports from the Moldy Luke case that both of Fats's boys were questioned by the feds, and Bobby was there when Fats was pinched. Now, let's get through to how Richie got thrown into this mad mix. When Bobby was extradited to Boston, he continued cooperating with the government. The case went from three to four suspects. Richie was indicted as an accessory before the fact. Bobby claimed that Dad offered him $100 to borrow his car back in December of 1956. So Richie wasn't even involved? No. He always swore up, down, and sideways that he had absolutely nothing to do with it. Look, Dad wasn't shy about his involvement in crime. If the statute of limitations had run out, he had no problem telling you all of the sort of details. Now, don't get me wrong. Dad was an amazing liar, but this wasn't one of his lies. Even at the trial, Mrs. DeSisto said the only time she saw Richie was when she went to the North End where her husband owned a fruit stand. She remembered seeing Richie walking around. But Dad had no alibi. He was running a dice game for Ralphie the night of the home invasion, and he had paid Bobby to borrow his car in the past to make his heroin deliveries. He couldn't tell the law either of those things. When did Richie get arrested? On March 18th, 1957, Richie was arrested, and this is when he first meets Rico. In the meantime, Grandma raised the $6,000 needed to bail Dad out. She gave my Uncle Brendan the money, and what did Brendan do? He went to the track and blew the money. Exactly. Brendan never won a bet in his life, and Dad ended up in the hole. Didn't Rico try to turn him then? 
Yes, I have some of Richie's notes from when he was contemplating writing his story. Because of Dad's connection to Bobby Buccelli, Rico thought there was a chance he could make a connection to Fats and the Brinks money. Well, it does make perfect sense from a cop's perspective. So what ended up happening? Rico didn't get anywhere. Richie said Rico hated him on the spot, and that time it was unimaginable to Dad that he would turn on Ralphie or the guys that he was running for. Plus, he had nothing to do with Fats on that level. He knew Fats from Ralphie's club. Somehow he reached out to Fats in prison to reason with Bobby. Fats basically said that he didn't care what happened to Bobby, that it was his problem. Well, Bobby didn't stop with Richie. In May, Lawrence Wood was picked up by the feds in Los Angeles. He was part of the secret indictment. They had to bring him back by train since he refused to fly. The only prior offense I could find on Wood was when he got picked up for stealing a woman's raincoat and assaulting a female store detective at Jordan Marsh. Well, Bobby's list didn't stop with Wood either. When Dad was arrested, Leo Aylward was picked up as an accessory after the fact. Bobby included him as one of his kidnappers. Mind you, Aylward was Mesty's brother-in-law. Leo Elward had a record for petty theft and stick-ups. When I was researching him for this episode, I found a newspaper article about a car crash that he was in. It was in 1956, and his passenger was a William Joyce. It reminded me of episode 6 when we were discussing the Ross case. We were trying to figure out who our mystery man named Joyce was. Well, we have another potential suspect. I doubt it's a coincidence. Same time frame, same area, same group of people. The little digging I did on Joyce turned up pretty petty things like hurling a brick through a shop window. And they caught him immediately. You know it's the same old story. First there's three or four suspects, then there's two, or then there's three suspects, and then suddenly there's eight. Hey, no argument here. In Buccelli's testimony, he stated that he and Wood forced their way into the DeSisto home. Bobby blamed Wood for tying them up and stabbing the maid with a penknife. The trial was scheduled to start on June 10th, but they couldn't come up with a jury. So what did they do? The judge ordered the court officers to, quote, go to the highways and byways to pick up persons as potential jurors, unquote. The court officers went to the Cuneo Press Factory. They rounded up 58 factory workers and dragged them to the courthouse. I've never heard of anything like that before. Who knew that was even a thing? There was a seldom used statute that allowed the sheriffs to collect jurors from the streets. Dad wasn't going to risk a pissed off jury. The day after his 22nd birthday, he pled guilty to being an accessory before the fact and conspiracy. I'll post the photo of dad being led away by the court officer with grandma in tow. The following day, Mesty, Dixon, and Wood tried to fire their attorney, Joseph Sachs. Mesty claimed that Lieutenant Cornelius Crowley had been threatening Sachs to throw the case. A verbal altercation broke out between Mesty and Crowley, ending with Crowley screaming, You're a liar! The judge denied their motion. At the trial, Sachs stated that Bobby set up the robbery. He said Bobby was shaking down the DeSisto family and had been operating as an enforcer collecting debt for the mob, and that's how he knew about the money. Well, that does make sense. Fats was away and Bobby was collecting for him. Bobby shows up later in the 302s being interviewed about his late father's activities. He claims he was taking messages to Raymond Patriarca in Providence for his father, who was incarcerated at Deer Island. Reading between the lines, it was more than messages. He probably wanted a little extra for himself. But Bobby couldn't take the heat, so he turned on his partners in crime. As an added bonus, he threw in Richie. More than likely, there was bad blood between Bobby and Richie. Shortly before the DeSisto robbery, Dad had Bobby thrown out of the dice games for screwing around with the high rollers. They couldn't stand each other. Dad thought Bobby was a brainless loudmouth, and he was definitely no fan of fats. Richie knew Bobby was getting even with him by doing this. 
The trial did not go smoothly. When Mrs. DeSisto was testifying, she had a verbal altercation with Wood and Mesty. She clearly identified Bobby and Wood as the ones who forced their way into her home. She changed her story, though. Instead of the cloth baby diapers, she said that a thin blanket was thrown over her head so she could see Mesty and Dixon, too. She stated Richie wasn't there, and he was only familiar to her from the streets of the North End. Both Woods and Mesty screamed at Mrs. DeSisto during her testimony, including Mesty screaming, You're a liar. On June 25th, the sentences were handed down. Mesty was given three to five years for assault, plus two seven to ten year sentences for assault with a deadly weapon and kidnapping. The sentences were to run concurrently. Dixon was sentenced on five different counts, with the highest sentence being 35 to 45 years. Wood was sentenced on four counts, with a maximum sentence of 43 to 55 years. Elward was given three sentences of three to five to run concurrently for being an accessory after the fact. It was interesting to me that although Richie had pled guilty on June 20th, he wasn't sentenced until December 19th. He was given two and a half years with five years probation to begin upon release. Dad ended up in Concord with Jack, Roy, Billy, and Mello. Dad always referred to Concord Prison as the Institute of Higher Learning he attended. Well, he probably learned more there than most do in uni these days. No question. Richie may have never finished high school, but he read everything he could get his hands on over the years. As for street smarts, he died of old age. Granted, he was on probation at the time, but he wasn't in a prison cell. He was the last of his original crew to pass away. He outlasted them all. On October 15th, Mesty was blinded and disfigured in an acid attack in prison. Mesty had more than his share of enemies. A man who held a gun to a woman's head while he tried to drown and scald a small child during the robbery at the DeSisto home wasn't winning any popularity contests. Three men were charged with the attack, James Parker, Russell Halliday, and William Cavanaugh. If you've been listening in, you might remember that Cavanaugh was Sonny, Sonny DiFario's partner in the pepper theft and was convicted of aiding Elmer Trigger Burke's escape from Charles Street. The inmates raised $600 for the defense counsel of the three. The defense attorney happened to be Joseph Sachs. They were all acquitted in December of 1957. If you listen to episode three, you'll remember that Billy Aggie was voted out of Walpole State Prison. Well, Billy wasn't the only one voted out. James Parker and Russell Halliday also made the list of 23. Halliday was serving time for aiding Martin Feeney for one of his many escapes. We will be talking about Feeney later in the season. Oh, and let's not forget about Jimmy Fleming. And off they all went to Concord. I want to point out that Jimmy Fleming arrived in Walpole just a few days before Mesty was attacked. I highly suspect Jimmy was involved in that attack. It wouldn't be his only attack or murder in his time in prison. The other boy who got picked up for the 1956 robbery with Fleming and Mesty was later attacked in prison, too. I agree with you. When I saw that Jimmy had recently been sentenced for the robbery he was involved in with Mesty, and a few days later the acid attack happened, my mind immediately jumped to Jimmy. Especially since the charges were dropped against Mesty in their robbery case, Jimmy probably thought he informed on him. Well, I have my own suspicions on when I think Jimmy became an informant, and it certainly wasn't 1965. No doubt in my mind. But I do wonder if Jimmy was involved in that robbery at all. As usual, there's too many missing pieces to get a clear picture. He didn't, certainly didn't do himself any favors in the interim. First, he went on the lam. Then, when he was finally caught in July and brought to court, he tried to escape the police. We have a photo that we'll post on the website. Back to the DeSisto case. Dixon and Woods had their sentences reduced in early 1958. Both had a decade taken off the minimum portions of their sentences. Messi was released in 1961 on account of his blindness. In July of 58, Bobby was sentenced to two years in the Plymouth House of Correction, quote, for his own protection, unquote. 
I have to jump in here. She was supposed to say that Jimmy was arrested in Saugus, but she can't say Saugus because she's from California, but whatever. Okay. <laughs> you don't have any rebuttal to that, Ms. Nina? I have Nina? no rebuttal to that, except <laughs> that you guys can't speak. All right, whatever. Dad was released on June 19th, 1958. It was his birthday, but his freedom didn't last long. Fats was murdered on the same day, and before Richie could step foot in his home, Rico was there to arrest him for Fats's murder. Well, we hate to leave you hanging, but you'll have to wait until episode 10 to find out what happened next. Next week, Nina will be telling us about Hoover's All-American Boys Club. We will be discussing some of the special agents of the Boston FBI office who were prominent in the 1950s and 60s, many of whom will be popping up throughout season one. I'm just coming along for the ride on this one. Well, I think it'll be great and hilarious. If you say so. Guys, thank you all for listening. Shameless plugging time. Please follow us on whatever platform you listen on. Leave a review, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and spread the word, please. Bye. Bye. Double Deal. True stories of criminals, crimes, and lies.